Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Working for a Living uh, radio show where progressives for change present opinions that matter. Tonight, we're joined by hosts Jeff Brown and David Fillion, and I'm your moderator, Leroy McKnight. We have two announcements. Uh, Let's have a moment of silence for the Catholic priest who was beheaded in France last week and the innocent men and women, men, women, children who had to witness this horrific crime. Thank you, everyone. Uh, Hopefully this sort of thing stops pretty soon. Anyhow, the second announcement is the Honeywell workers remain locked out by plant management. There's no strategy strategy forthcoming from Solidarity House in dealing with this rogue corporation uh, who has hired a union busting company to come in and uh, deal with our members. So uh, we'll look forward to see what's happening there soon. Uh, There's no emails this week. We uh, expect to have a caller here pretty soon uh, in the next uh, five minutes or so. Uh, But for now, uh, let's uh, bring on the two co-hosts, Jeff Brown and Dave Fillion. Jeff, how are you doing tonight? I'm good, Leroy. How are you? I'm pretty good. Uh, Jeff, thanks for being here this evening. And David, are you there? Yep, I'm here. How are you guys doing tonight? Good to hear from both of you. Hey, Dave. How you doing, Jeff? I'm okay. Good. Uh, Jeff, you uh, have the uh, honor of going uh, forward with the uh, uh, Ford issue about the 401Ks. Why don't you take that away while we wait for our caller, and uh, I'll try and work her in after you. How's that? That's good, yeah. Um, okay, earlier this week, there was a article that came across the Internet Basically, it's a class action lawsuit for Ford employees. It's not just Ford. I just found out that it's also, uh, let's see, it's also for against Honeywell, not Honeywell, Apple, Capital, or Caterpillar, Motorola. Um, it seems that the brokerage firm who handles the 401ks for people who are participating in these companies are being overcharged for excessive fees. Um, it doesn't say much more about it, but we do have a link on our uh, Working for a Living. Click on that and get some more information. It's kind of funny that, well, not funny, but... Uh, this came out almost the same time that Ford stock dropped earlier in the week. 
same day. Um, so like, we think these two these two cases are related. Um, but yeah, if if we have a problem or want information, just visit our webpage. There's a class class action lawsuit regarding your 401k. Um, back in 2009, Ford workers, if you would remember, we had our 401k set up with Fidelity. And after 2009 concessions, the company and the union uh, decided to switch uh, brokerage firms. And they are the ones that are being sued um, over this issue during the class action lawsuit. Um, that's what I have, Leroy. There's, we will keep everybody informed as this case continues. Uh, there's, you know, this people's money. They work hard for it, and they're being screwed out of our our four hundred one k because they're charging extra fees. So, that's all I got, Leroy. Okay, thank you, Jeff. Uh, David, do you have any more on that topic? Um, very much something said about um, um, the people in these um, 401k plans. Um, if they follow the uh, um, plan um, investments, um, they would um, be at a greater risk um, with their money than if they... Uh, went with mutual funds. Um, I read that earlier in the week. Um, And then the rest of what Jeff is saying about the uh, excessive fees, um, what I read pretty much concurred with what Jeff said. So people should be looking at these mutual funds as safer investments. That's about all I got on that, Leroy. Okay, uh, thank you, uh, David. Uh, I think, uh, Jeff, uh, you want to uh, just say a few words while I check and see our callers here? Uh, if you don't mind. Yeah, um, we strongly urge that the employees from Ford uh, research this case. I know earlier in the week there was, this was a hot topic of discussion in one of the Ford plants and as it should be, but they, they didn't know what was going on until they contacted me. Um, and I guess tomorrow that this word will be spread around uh, the plants. And I, I really hope people check into this. This is no, no laughing matter. Um, it's very serious. And for your own protection. There's a, right. there's a link to right. it where you can contact the people and you can give your name, email address, phone number, and they'll give you a call. So, yeah, there you go. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, we, we do have a caller uh, in, in the queue here. Uh, Ellen's waiting. She's a teacher in the Michigan school system, and uh, she... Uh, is aware of what we talked about last week regarding the uh, Republican Governor Snyder 
appealing the Supreme Court case of Michigan that was friendly to the teachers, uh, a rare uh, a decision from the Michigan Supreme Court that favored workers. Uh, and Ellen's here now to uh, uh, discuss a little bit about that and give us uh, the teacher's perspective. Ellen, welcome to the show, Working for a Living. Thank you. Hi, Leroy. How are you? I'm good. Good. Nice, nice to have you on the show this evening. Uh, and uh, uh, it's, it's always a pleasure. So uh, having said that, uh, you have some uh, information on the uh, uh, issue of the Supreme Court uh, appeal. Uh, and just go ahead and give us your thoughts on that. Okay. Well, first of all, I was a teacher, and I am now a building principal. But uh, back in 2010, uh, the Michigan legislature decided to start collecting 3% of our salary to put into a retired teacher's health care fund. They did the same thing to the state workers, you may recall. Uh, right. But because the state workers are under the civil service, uh, civil service rules, they were able to um, effectively get that action reversed. But they went ahead and collected 3% from 2010 to 2012, and actually they are still collecting it. Uh, but the uh, Court of Appeals has actually ruled that that was unconstitutional because there were no guarantees that we would ever see any of that money for ourselves. So that was the issue. And my understanding is the Attorney General, Bill Schuette, has said he's not going to take it any farther, but Governor Snyder is continuing to fight, you know, fight us to give us our money back that was collected illegally from our paycheck. Right, right. And the, the uh, teacher's position is it's illegal and it's a lot of money, right? I mean, this... If, well, if sure. Make, um, I mean, for, yeah, for an yeah. average, probably average teacher, it would be probably for two years somewhere between hmm, four and $5,000. Oh, and uh, the be, money was taken... Go ahead. No, that would be... Returns to the teachers four and five thousand four and or five thousand right. dollars up to five that, in a return yeah sure so, um, so unfortunately Snyder's continuing to fight uh, even though I think that he is going to lose in the end and unfortunately you know we've seen this kind of stuff out of him before um, most recently I don't know if you're aware but the uh, state legislature passed a law or part of the school funding bill that would allow public money to go to uh, schools, private schools that are religious schools. And uh, I think they're getting set up for a big lawsuit there too, because the law is pretty clear. The case law is pretty clear on that. Correct. Right. I, I wasn't aware of that, but thank you for, for updating me and the rest of the listeners and our team here. So that's, that's interesting news for us. So, uh, uh, so, where, what do you think the outcome will be, uh, at, you know, as he pursues this into the federal system, Ellen? Well, I think he's going to lose. Um, do I expect a check from the state? Probably not. I, I think they'll try to figure out a way to maybe roll it into our pensions in some way for those of us who still have pensions, because as you know, the the new hires in the state of Michigan, if you're a teacher, um, you know, you get a 401k, you don't get a pension anymore. Uh, but, you know, the, the money is sitting there. Um, I believe the other money that's been collected since 2012 is in escrow. So I don't know if it means that we're going to get all of our money back 
But, um, you know, Snyder has created quite a problem for himself as far as um, not having enough revenues coming in. And so I'm sure he does not want to give the money back. Right. Well, and this this whole uh, effort to go forward to the federal court system, of course, this is paid for by uh, Michigan residents, correct? Absolutely. It's paid for by the taxpayers. And they don't even have the attorney general is not on board. Of course, you know, Bill Schrute wants to run for governor in 2018. And so um, I think he knows a loser when he sees one, even though he's been behind other losing causes. And uh, I think that, um, you know, not only is Snyder going forward to continue to fight the teachers, but he's doing it without the attorney general and that, you know, legion of uh, attorneys that they have uh, available, you know, through the state. Right, right. Now, I I know it's summertime, Ellen, but I also know that you have a a very uh, well-honed network uh, with, you know, among your teacher friends. Uh, What is the general opinion uh, that your your feedback that you're getting back from the the other teachers or, or administrators in the in the system about this regarding issue. this issue or just in general yeah this issue regarding for now. this issue well yeah. I think everybody feels like this money was taken illegally um, there was no basis for it you can't just decide to take money uh, or do anything you know charge fees or taxes without it being done properly uh, as far as going through the legislative process. And so I think this is something they came up with that was kind of a money grab. And I would tell you that most of my colleagues, you know, feel very strongly that, you know, this money needs to be returned. I mean, people have to realize that, you know, teaching never has been really a a high-paying job, even though it's one of the most stressful jobs in the world. And uh, we used to get decent benefits. We used to get, you know, good health insurance and a pension. And all of that is being taken away. My teachers, and actually I pay 500 a month uh, for my insurance, and I know that my teachers in my district are paying pretty close to that. Um, that's also something that was created by the legislature in terms of the caps that they put on how much districts could pay for health insurance for their um, employees. Now, Granted, I mean, I realize there are people that don't have any health insurance, but it's always been kind of an agreement um, that, you know, if you are working in the teaching profession, maybe after 25 years, maybe you're making fifty-five to $60,000 a year. Other professions would be making much more. But the kind of trade-off was good benefits and a pension, and that has been eroded under Snyder. Under this last administration, you're saying? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. They okay. have totally, um, totally, you know, and, and it's what, what's quite interesting is we all are aware now the teacher shortage is for real, and um, people are retiring because they just see that it's just going to get worse and worse. The teachers in my district don't even have a planning hour anymore. Um, they're working a lot harder. They're working with populations that are, um, especially in the public schools, that are, expensive to educate and difficult and uh people are not going into the teaching profession so this is going to be present a big challenge i think yes i i tend to agree so uh the 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 people that instruct our children on a daily basis while most mom and dads are away from home working Mm -hmm. uh and and they entrust them to the teachers in the system, and uh, 
these teachers now are disgruntled uh, and uh, uh, you know not just simply not happy whatsoever with their remuneration and uh, the general treatment by the government and all these things that have been taken away, and these are things that we, uh, uh, you know, shouldn't have our teachers feeling. I would submit that uh, having happy teachers that uh, then instruct our children every day, administrators instruct our children every day, uh, would be a good thing. And, and what you're saying is there's a lot of disgruntled teachers there and uh, would you agree that this is not healthy for our, our children that come through the system? Well, absolutely. Um, not only that, I mean, when you look at the situation we're in now, with since John Angler was governor, we have schools of choice, so people who can, you know, they're putting their kids in the suburban schools or they're choosing charter schools, and that leaves the public schools with the most expensive, difficult students to educate. And uh, the problem is now our schools are probably as segregated as they've ever been. And so the problem that I see is that, like speaking for myself, I work in an urban district with very high poverty. Uh, You know, I have a lot of concerns about those children. Obviously, they're the most, uh, you know, difficult to educate and at the same time need education, you know, desperately. But my feeling is is that um, I, I don't even know if disgruntled is the right word. I just think that teachers are feeling very, very tired. They're stressed. They don't feel appreciated. Um, I think that's probably really uh, uh, the, the point that I think we are, that what we have arrived at because you look at yeah. the number of teachers that even that they get a job, there are many teachers that they leave teaching within the first five years. I mean, it's not uh, a secure job anymore. It is uh, again, as I mentioned, there's that you you know a starting teacher salary is probably maybe thirty five thousand dollars a year, and it is an extremely difficult job, and something that is such an important job for our society. Right, and in your case, you're dealing with you know children from you know uh, single parent homes in poverty, mm-hmm. both parents in, in abstract. I know I know the area that you're in and the abstract poverty. I mean, the, these children go home to homeless shelters every night. Uh, That's right. That's right. So That's this, right. this is very sad. If you, Ellen, I mean, I, I know you're a, a very well informed and in the audience, we don't want to get into your, your background because it might just give away exactly who you are, but I know you're very well informed about legislative matters and issues over many decades, quite frankly. Uh, if there were, a couple of things that you could summarize that could be done to alleviate some of these things that we've just talked about and you've uh, brought to our attention, the listeners' attention. What do you think could be done? Uh, just just the first couple of steps, perhaps. What do you think, just off the top of your shoulder? Well, I think that we need to look at um, a couple of things. I think that, first of all, um, we need to do what Minnesota has done, and they have conducted what we call adequacy studies to say how much does it actually cost to educate this child. If you have a child that is from a high-poverty uh, school district, parents are maybe, you know, um, undereducated, uh, live in, like, as you pointed out, possibly homeless, then they might cost more to educate than students that live, you know, in a 
upper middle class household. Uh, part of the problem you have is is that there's a lot of people that are perfectly satisfied with their children's schools because, you know, they live in wealthy districts and they are able to have just, you know, everything at their fingertips. So I think, first of all, we have to recognize that not only do we perhaps think about paying people more if they are working in districts where there are children that are, you know, in high poverty, but also realize that we have to fund those schools. We have to provide the support. We have to provide the literacy and the math support to help these students catch up because students in poverty, they come into kindergarten with less than their counterparts that live in wealthier districts, you know, their vocabulary, uh, the amount that they are read to, all the things that make a a child successful. Um, So I think that's one thing. I think the the talk right now in Michigan and across the country is they're talking about we're going to hold kids back at third grade if they're not, you know, they're not reading at grade level. Okay, well, that sounds good on paper, but what are you prepared to pay for? I mean, you can't just say we're going to hold kids back and keep putting them through the, the same system that's failing them. You have to be able to put your money where your mouth is, I think. So I think that's a, a huge issue. Um, and I guess for I live in Michigan, and I guess uh, one of the things that I think we should really look at is countywide school districts like they do on the East Coast, where all of the schools in, in the county would get funding, you know, that you would get rid of this um, duplication of services. In my county where I work, there's 17 different school districts. There's 17 different superintendents. And so, you know, what if we decide that the kids that live in the inner city need more money? The county could say, a county district could say, we're going to put more resources here and maybe not so many in the everything at their fingertips. Right. Right, right. I'm I'm well aware that Florida has countywide uh, system, you know, and I've mm-hmm. often used used that as an uh, example myself because I think I think you're spot on with that, uh, Ellen, and uh, it does away with a lot of the redundancy and you know frees up some money, by the way, to to pay for some of the things that uh, you sure that we need that we need. So, uh, do you have anything else uh, before we wrap up your segment? No, uh, I appreciate uh, having the opportunity to just give my opinion, and um, yeah, I really yeah. hope people will be paying attention. Uh, you were not hearing a lot uh, on the national level as far as K-12 education. You hear a lot about preschool, and you hear a lot about college, making college affordable, but there's this big old gap. <laughs> it's kindergarten through 12th grade that we're not hearing a lot about, and I would truly like to hear our uh, presidential candidates and, uh, you know, members of Congress talking about how do we educate children effectively? Uh, how do we support the public schools? Because right now they are not being supported. So I, I, I think this is a, has to be a national conversation and that we need to recognize that education is the thing that touches all of us and that we need to figure out a way to support our public schools. I, I agree. And, you know, perhaps some means testing might be, uh, you know, those folks that are well healed in, in the you know, suburban areas versus the urban areas where the, the, you know, the moms and dads are struggling just to put food in their mouth at night and that roof over their head. Uh, whoever mm-hmm. was, you know, the custodian. If we had a means testing where if a school district or a school, you know, structure uh, in the inner city, had a lower 
uh, relative income, they would get more money from the school district. Uh, well, and that's what, like I said, there are states like Minnesota, that's exactly what they're doing. They're putting okay. resources right. where they are needed. Yes. So. Okay. Well, thanks a lot for coming on the show, Ellen. We really appreciate you having uh, having you on here this evening, and uh, feel free to come back. Any other issues show up regarding the teachers? We really appreciate you here. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you, Leroy. Enjoy your evening. Yeah. Bye-bye. Yep. Have a good night. Okay. We have a number of people in the switchboard. If there's anybody that wants to talk, uh, please raise your hand by pressing 1, uh, and uh, we'll get back to the rest of our show here. Thanks uh, to Ellen for coming on. She's, her and her husband are actually old friends, uh, and uh, we have uh, uh, just a, a good working relationship over several decades, so it's nice to hear from her and all of her opinions here on the show. So I hope you listeners benefited from uh, a woman that's really, really uh, uh, intuitive to a lot of things. So we, we really appreciate Ellen coming on. Thank you again, Ellen. Uh, so, uh, David, I'm going to see if you're ready for your issue regarding the Ford uh, um, going to Mexico? Are you there? Yes, I am. I'm ready. Okay. Okay. Take it away. All right. We have uh, Ford um, announcing a new assembly plant south of the U.S. border in Mexico. Um, the $1.6 billion investment um, will increase factory output from Mexico just months after um, having signed a labor deal, um, this new factory will be built in San Luis Potosi. Um, also, Ford will expand an existing facility near Mexico City. Um, the debate over cheaper labor, um, According to Bureau of Labor Statistics and Manufacturing, the costs in Mexico are approximately one-fifth those in the United States. Um, also, I have some things here. By 2020, Mexico is expected to build one in four vehicles in North America industry, producing 8.6 million units a year. Those will be exported to us. Um, then um, we have to look at the trade agreements that were signed into law in '93 by uh, President Clinton. Um, that's one of uh, several factors. Um, this is another example of what's wrong with NAFTA why the Trans-Pacific Partnership would be a disaster for citizens of the United States. Um, referring to a trade agreement that the U.S. might join involving major countries in Asia, companies continue to run low-wage countries and import back into the United States. In addition to NAFTA, Mexico has 10 other free trade agreements covering 43 countries. Um, an economic development arm of the Mexican government. Um, auto executives, um, they claim Mexico's ports and rail systems make it easy to export cars out of the country of Mexico. Um, Mexico's wages are far below 
um, U.S. wages, the average Mexican worker assembling vehicles or parts earns about $7.79 per hour, including his benefits. Um, that's according to the Center for Automotive Research, where I collected that data. Um, okay. That's substantially less than $37.38 in the U.S. and $39.04 in Canada. Um, when you talk about the um, profitability of small cars, all well, these are factors. Um, so that uh, kind of leads up to um, your portion of this uh, discussion tonight. Um, so that's about I right. have on, all I have on that. So if you guys want to comment on that further, um, go ahead. Dave, uh, Jeff, do you have uh, comments on David's segment there? No, he covered it real good. Um, it, you know, we go back a couple weeks ago and we blasted Mr. Williams about not knowing uh, production moving from the U.S. to Mexico. Um, so we we knew it was going to happen uh, at the time we wrote up the contract. I don't know why he was so shocked to hear about it because he is the president of the International Union. Goes to show he's not qualified to his job. I, I I agree. I think he's playing above his pay grade, uh, and we'll get into that in um, my segment. But I'm going to defer mine for the moment because we do have another caller, and it's sort of an important call. Uh, it's a very important issue that's ongoing inside the UAW uh, within the Ford division. Uh, and uh, let's let's bring on our other caller here. Uh, for the evening uh, that called in. Uh, Art Peterson, welcome to the show, and thank you for coming on, giving us a little, your t- little bit of your time. How are you this evening? I'm doing well. Leroy, thanks for thanks for asking, and, and uh, hello to David and Jeff as well. Um, Hi, Art. Uh, how are you? Good. Glad to hear from you tonight, Art. Well, it's... My issue is just one of many, but it, it certainly the you know it's it's interesting in the for those who who aren't familiar with it I I, I I'm appealing the ratification contract ratification vote of the Ford UAW uh, collective bargaining agreement in 2015 and it's taken almost seven months to get through the International Executive Board, and now I'm ready to to send my appeal on to the Public Review Board. But right. you know, so, much of the right. much of the International Executive Board's rhetoric is is that I'm 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 uh, you know doing this on my own, and there's the the majority wanted to pass that agreement and, and I think there's a whole lot of us that, that beg to differ from that opinion. So Right. Art Art uh uh to recap a little bit, uh you filed your appeal back in I guess uh December, uh and this was filed timely. Uh and then it, it went through your local union. Uh and uh then it's uh been denied by the local union went up uh, to the International Executive Board by and through the President, Dennis Williams, 
uh, and they uh, held a hearing, uh, and then that uh, hearing was then forwarded to the International Executive Board in Mass to make a decision, and they sent you a denial recently from their level with some answer, or with some comments there and their their uh, positions, and now you're uh, in receipt of that and formulating uh, an answer to all of their uh, position. Uh, there were actually, as I recall it, two appeals. Uh, one was sort of sidetracked at the local union, and at the hearing, the hearing officer allowed that appeal to go forward uh, uh, because it had been sidetracked for what he deemed to be an appropriate meet, um, uh, uh, method. So uh, the hearing officer added that. So this is the first time you've seen an answer from them on this issue as well. So now in receipt of that, you're formulating an, an, an answer and that uh, you, so to be clear, is it your intention to forward that to the public review board in a timely fashion? Yes, yes, indeed. They, you know, it's, they, they, they put so many inconsistencies and, and discrepancies in, in their answer that it, it's going to be a long-winded response because I want to point out all their inadequacies. I mean, it, it, they, they yeah. literally... So you, you, you found their answer to you and their position to not be inconsistent with the actual facts. Is that correct? Well, yes. And, 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 and in fact, they, you know, part of what I've run into in this process is is that they they keep on telling me the leadership or those involved with with the ratification process they tell me that it was a ratification vote it wasn't an election but yet in the international executive board's response they quite often have have said uh, talked about the constitution and language that that in the constitution that deals with elections rather than ratification. So, so they, it's like they're using some election language. Anyways, it, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm actually kind of, kind of uh, laughing um, if I, if I'm not crying about the response because it, it's, they, they literally talk about um, many of the things they, their answer is there's there's no rule against that or or yeah well let's let's take for instance the the, the 500 ballots that uh, were not accounted for. Their response is that it is undisputed that 500 ballots were unaccounted for. We acknowledge that the vote differential between the total votes cast for the DP, DP national and local are are. Uh, let me get to the next page because it goes on to the next yeah. page. It's just, and they're they're literally acknowledging that there's 500 ballots there. However, we also note that the national CBA margin of victory was 1681. Henceforth, even if we lend credence to the 500 unaccounted for ballots, the local union's ratification still wins. But they don't—they don't tell you that the 
before Local 600 numbers were added in, the contract was being rejected by 1,700 votes. So, you know, it... Yeah, so they, those, they, those uh, people that so what what you're saying are is uh, there, there's a, a majority uh, of the local unions that voted against this, and coming into your u- local union 600, uh, and that was the last local to vote, as I under, as I recall, uh, as as you were the last local to vote, uh, the uh, the numbers coming into that uh, election for your local union were against it by 1,700 votes. So those people have a vested interest in your appeal now, don't they? This isn't just you. This is, you know, the majority of the rest of the the Ford division of the UAW uh, membership. Is it not right? That's that's correct. And, and, you know, their their contention that if they take the 500 away from the 1681 that – that the Dearborn truck plant voted yes versus no, their contention is that it still passes by 1,161. They're not arguing that there was 500 ballots there that aren't accounted for. My mind tells me that if there's 500 ballots that that aren't accounted for, then, then none of them are any good. That makes a good argument, Art. You know, very good argument. And, you know, people that don't necessarily have the vested interest as having been negotiating this agreement are going to set in judgment of this case here very soon. The Public Review Board, as uh, I believe it, uh, there's three uh, uh, PhDs on the board at this time. I don't believe any of them are attorneys, like we used to have some attorneys on there. But uh, they're going to they're going to take a look at this in a very different way when it uh, does get heard by them because I expect that they're going to have a hearing and I believe you have 40 minutes to present your side of the case uh, and uh, we look forward to that. Uh, it is interesting, Art, uh, that the 1,700 uh, uh, against, you know, the totals uh, were 1,700 against, so they needed to make that 1,700 up in your local union. And they had an opportunity to roll this out at all the locations in their uh, rollout meetings where they educated the membership on the um, uh, the matter of uh, uh, what's in the agreement. And then when they look like they're behind the eight ball, uh, they have this special meeting at your local union by the vice president of Ford General Motors Division, or the uh, Ford UAW Division, uh, uh, Jimmy Settles, and uh, that is uh, arguably uh, threatening intimidation and coercion because he had 14 other opportunities to do that by and through his staff. Is that not right? That's entirely correct. Yeah, a week and I, a half think, into yeah, yeah, a week and a half into the voting, knowing that it was being rejected, it was actually a, a, a 52.5% and that's rounding up. They actually was higher than that. But our, the 52.5% rejection to 47.5% approval. So the majority, they, they, they claim in their answer that 
majority had a chance to speak and they 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 chose to ratify and quite honestly if you look at the ballots that are that are suspect as well as their their answers um it, it it's a majority i i believe a majority wanted it to 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 re, be rejected and and that's that's why I'm I'm glad that right, I have right. had the opportunity so, to to go. Go ahead. Yeah, no, we we talked last week about that last minute, uh, uh, you know, meeting press and, and uh, press conference at your local union, uh, and that uh, uh, they in in your uh, the answer that you received from them, they said there's no rule against him doing that. No, there uh, are no course, rules you, contrary to. Yeah, well, in, in, uh, for, as you've been made aware, uh, that you know the UAW has its constitution and it has its policies and manuals, handbooks for some of the committees, you know, uh, that redefine that, and perfect uh, the constitution. And there are some cases in the, uh, you know, that actually perfect the actual language of the constitution uh, in some way. Uh, but it is subordinate to the Superintending National Labor Relations Act, as uh, you've been made aware, and there actually is a rule against threatening, intimidating uh, for the purpose of an election, and uh, I believe you now have that in your possession. Is that not right? I, I do, and, and you know, the the interesting thing is that the wording that the International Executive Board says stated in my my issue was that Vice President of the UAW National Ford Department holding a press conference to encourage members to support the UAW Ford CBA. That's not my contention that he was held it to encourage members. He held it to intimidate and, and to push people to, to in the way that he wanted to do it. It wasn't encouraging at all. He actually called us all stupid. Yeah, and didn't they throw a press member out of there, this credentialed press member that wanted to come in? Didn't they just take his camera away from him? Yes, they did. Um, it, it was one of the, the, the uh, I believe, the workers' socialist website uh, people. But, you know, yeah. if you're having a press conference, you're, you're opening it up to, to the, the press. To be right? This reported. is America. Still America. Uh, this is still America. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Jeff, another, uh, another. Jeff might have a question or two for you, uh, Art, because uh, he's, uh, you know, been, uh, you know, looking over some of this stuff here as well. Uh, Jeff, do you have any questions or comments for Art? No. Uh, Art and I have talked several times. Um, he's been on the show several times. Um, as a Ford employee, I voted against the, the uh contract and I will keep voting this contract until we get everything correct for the membership um, I support Art in his fight and we are trying to get the word out to everybody um, in the forward system so please help however you can for Art um, he's taking out a huge battle by himself and we wish him a lot of luck so, well, thank thanks, you. Jeff. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks, yeah. Jeff. You know, wh whatever, 
whoever out there feels as I do that the, this that that ratification vote was done wrongly, they 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 do need to speak up at their at the other locals around the country. That those people that agree with me need to let their voices heard so that they know that it's not just me. You know, it it just um they again there's a number of times in their answer that they 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 cite that that a majority of the of the local membership wanted it to to go the way it did that they their voice was heard and that's it's just not the case so but thanks yeah, thanks I, Jeff and yeah okay uh mm-hmm. just hang on a little bit Art David do you have anything that you'd like to ask uh, art or comment on art? No, um, just that I have a great deal of respect for what he's doing. Um, um, I really appreciate that he stands up and uh, um, speaks for his membership at Ford Motor Company. Um, if you don't uh, use the contract or the Constitution. Um, there did just dead pieces of paper, and what was done there appears to be very wrong. Um, what was witnessed on social media looked like a complete fiasco. And uh, so um, I really support Art and his effort, and I hope he succeeds. Thank you, David. Thank you. Uh, Art, Art, go ahead, Art. Go ahead. I was just going to add, Art, uh, they, the, the people, any, any member in any one of the local unions across the entire UAW, any member, retired or active, may write in to the Public Review Board in support of Art's appeal. Any member. I will be doing that. I support art. I will be doing that. I encourage every person that's a member of the UAW, active or retired, no matter what division that you're in, you have a right, not just from Ford, any division, may write in to the Public Review Board and just simply say, I support Art Peterson, P-E-D-E-R-S-O-N, Art A.R.T. Peterson, in his appeal over the ratification vote. It's just a simple sentence, or you can make it as long and broad as you want. And the address for that to be mailed, I'm going to give it to you, is the Public Review Board, UAW, 904 Starkweather, S-T-A-R-K-W-E-A-T-H-E-R, Plymouth, Michigan, 4817-1339. Now, if you're listening to the show, you can just back it up and and, and go and, and review that again. But I'll give it to you real quick one more time. The Public Review Board, UAW, 904 Starkweather, Plymouth, Michigan, 48170 one three three nine in support of Art Peterson. Okay, Art. Uh anything else you have, Art? 
Well, it, again, the the once I get through this process, I will be making the, the this document public. But you know, there there's another another instance where where they they twisted my words around about lack of signatures and initials on on the membership list, and then their response was that the the allegation fails for lack of proof. They're, they're the, the, the the international executive board and the local 600 leadership are, are the ones that hold the ballots in the membership list. You know, they they're the ones that that have have failed to submit the proof because I, I guess I, I I just I don't understand how they can they can consciously say that there's no proof on my part turned in when when they didn't submit the most basic piece of evidence to to cover their claims for them to not submit any 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 uh ballots or membership lists as evidence essentially they they've got no proof or evidence that anybody at local 600 voted it's all hearsay right right yeah if they haven't they haven't uh, submitted those and they're the keeper of the records so uh you know how can they say that you know you haven't provided that information it's very interesting they try and do that although uh you are an eyewitness to improprieties in the election process and you call another eyewitness as to improprieties in the election process. And between the two of you eyewitnesses, I think there's uh, ought to be enough proof for the public review board to uh, at least order an, another supervised election at local 600 on this ratification vote. See what happens then without intimidation, public uh, uh, press conferences, just have another election supervised by some authority uh, higher than uh, you know than uh, what uh, the local union would be. Maybe bring in outside uh, union officials to do that. Uh, so, uh, anything else, Art? One, one, yeah, one thing real quick. And you mentioned sure. the the fact that a second appeal had gotten filed, and that that second appeal is essentially it's based on Article 19 and Article 50. They Quite often, Article 19 is, is cited most often, you know, when, when, when the international UAW or local leadership is talking about ratif- the ratification of a, of, of a contract, uh, they, they cite Article 19. Article 50 actually has language that helps to clarify that, that process, and, and it actually does that there's supposed to be a properly applied for and approved procedure from both the regional director per Article 19 and the per Article 50 approved by the International Executive Board. And somewhere down the line, they've they've come across to say that that. That procedure 
can be approved over the phone. It it doesn't have to be written. And, and quite honestly, I think there's a whole lot of procedures, ratification contract ratification procedures around the country that have not been properly approved, properly applied for and approved. So it's quite possible that there's other locals, people at other locals that, that have an, uh, an appeal available to them. Um, I, I just would really like to see others take the initiative and, and step up to the fact that their, their, their right was essentially stolen from them, their right to vote. Um, not just in, in, in the UAW Ford agreement in 2015, but I I I, I got a question whether GM and Chrysler are, are possibly in the same boat. Anyways, right, right, and and to to further perfect that, uh, didn't didn't the uh, hasn't over the last several decades the Public Review Board. Found that the ratification process and procedures are not adequate at least four times. Is that not correct, Art? At, at least four. I, I think I counted possibly six or more, but that's exactly right. And, and, and in fact, their their response cites uh, a, a case where they they say they say that the, the International Executive Board has the authority and flexibility to, to the authority and the flexibility to establish ratification procedures. Well, if they've got the authority and flexibility to do it, in my mind, my, my belief, and my, my, my appeal was based on the Ethical Practices Code, they don't just have the authority and flexibility. They've got the responsibility to to affect it so that they can have what they claim to be a free, fair, and democratic vote. You know, it, how can it be free, fair, and democratic if you don't have a written procedure that they can do what they want and say, hey, we made a phone call and it was approved. Well, it, it wasn't. You know, the the bottom line is, if you to to properly apply for anything, you, you don't call somebody up and say, "This is what we want to do." You got to put it in writing, and they don't they don't have anything in writing. They they literally, I had a, a, a UAW local six hundred official representative, elected representative, tell me that the document I was asking for didn't exist. Okay, yeah. So, you know, I guess the point is that, you know, after several decades and they still haven't perfected a proper procedure within the Constitution, much like it is under Article 38, uh, for a ratification vote where they have you know, challengers and uh, folks that are monitoring all of this and exactly how it's supposed to be conducted. Uh, you would think that uh, the leadership has been remiss in their duties that are, you know, very clearly uh, outlined for them to, you know, especially when admonished by the Public Review Board to correct that 
and they, you know, they haven't done it for decades. So the leadership, especially uh, the last several administrations, seems to be remiss in having uh, done their job here. So, but having said that, uh, you know, is there anything else? We're getting a little long. We don't want to go too far. Over no, I'm, I'm much of much of the, I I could talk all night long about it, Leroy and, and Jeff, Dave. Yeah. You know the, but you know ultimately. When once the once I get through the process with the public review board, the, the the documents will be be put up so that other people can see what what they've done. Um, yeah. I'd like to believe that the public review board will take care of this um, because any edu- well, <laughs> I, I again I believe any educated person would look at this stuff and read it and and and, and and wonder why they would that the answer to a question or an issue would be say, that that there are no rules against that when in fact there are that, that that's that's stuff written in the ethical practices codes it's stuff written into the the like you pointed out Leroy into the National Labor Relations Act so anyways yeah okay thanks for coming on Art I mean. We look forward to a super, you know, the, the PRB ordering a supervised election and that they order, uh, not just, you know, suggest, but they actually order that the uh, ratification procedure be uh, more in line with the uh, election of officers procedure where they had a supervised election committee that, uh, that supervises all of these ratification votes rather than just hodgepodge people coming in and, and administering it without any rule to speak of. Uh, so, uh, and certainly not a, a adhering to any sort of rule. And that's part of what you, you're a witness to is uh, the people would, once that's a, uh, public, uh, will be able to see exactly what that is. And you know, we're happy to post it on our page when you, uh, if you want us to do that too. And I know other pages are probably happy to do that for you too as, as well, Art. So again, thanks for coming on the show and giving us a little update on your appeal. It's uh, worth it for the membership to, to hear all of that. So uh, we appreciate you coming on. Anything else? Art, I will. Uh, get um, I will get a letter out in support of you to um, the review board um, Tuesday morning. That'd be great. Um, oh. You know what it amounts to. Thank, thanks much, Leroy and. Dave, Jeff, for, for 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 giving me time on your show. If anybody has, if anybody out there, listeners have questions, Leroy, feel free to forward them on to me. I'll do what I can to, to answer them in, in in as expedient manner as I can. Okay, we know you're busy writing, so we'll, you know, we'll, we'll try and you know balance that with your timeliness to get that out properly. So. Okay, Art, but we'll get that. We'll forward anything to you that we get for sure. Uh, all thanks. right, again, thanks for thanks for coming on, and uh, uh, we'll look forward to having you again soon, sometime. All righty. Thank you, Art. Okay. Good night, Art. Thank you. Uh, good night, Art. Yeah. Uh, we, we've gotten long. Uh, we wanted to cover this Dennis Williams uh, and Hillary talking about NAFTA. Uh, you know, it's probably just best to carry that over next week because we're right at an hour now, unless anybody 
really wants to hear that this week, Jeff or David. I do. You want, I do. You want to hear it? I would go along. You want to hear it this yeah, week? Yeah, I will go along. Um, I will go along. Jeff? If you, if you want to. Yeah, I'm good with it. Okay, well, I'll go ahead and cover it then. Uh, uh, I wrote earlier this week uh, on the issue of NAFTA, and uh, it was passed on December 8, 1993. And it was passed basically as to open the borders up free for everybody to have a free-for-all between all of the borders with very few exceptions. I really can't think of too many off the top of my head, NAFTA. And, and we've seen the result of NAFTA, but there's another thing out there that's hurt us even more. Um, and uh, so we've been dealing with this for some time, uh, and it's hurt us a lot uh, it, from the North American uh, Treaty uh, Free Trade Agreement uh, aspect. And we'll get into the other one in just a minute. But for now, uh, NAFTA uh, was negotiated with two first-tier tier one uh, economies. Both of uh, Canada and the United States were part of the G7 when this was negotiated. And Mexico was a third-tier country. Now, uh, you know, I, I was, as everybody was, very, uh, uh, very opposed to NAFTA. And in the 1992 presidential uh, uh, debate held at Michigan State University here in East Lansing, Ross Perot was remembered to say, if you pass NAFTA, you will hear a huge sucking sound of the money and jobs leaving this country. And thank you, Ross, for being on the side of our country, our country. This, this didn't just affect working men and women, but this affected our country uh, a lot. And, uh, and the result of that is that they're building product in Mexico, a third-tier country, uh, for wages, as David indicated earlier, that are, you know, arguably 15 times less than our wages here in the United States for our, our tier one workers. Uh, and quite frankly, uh, Germany's wages uh, for the auto industry are $64.13, and they just got a 2% raise, so I haven't really calculated that. So they're at a real dis big disadvantage, but they're across the Atlantic. We have to deal with North America every day. And as David indicated, they, they, they have developed a favorable truck route system and a rail system to these auto plants in uh, the southern portion of Mexico. Uh, that's where their auto belt is, just south of Mexico City. You can draw a 200-mile circle, semi-circle, underneath the south of Mexico City and just about every one of the the plants are there. I think the, at last count, I knew of about 21 uh, manufacturing facilities in Mexico. Um, Volkswagen, Toyota, Ford, GM, Chrysler, 
uh, Kia. I think those six are most prevalent. There might be another one in there that I just uh, am unaware of. Uh, and they're building that product down there uh, uh, every day for about 15 times less than what our, our people are paid. And that's quite simply not fair. We like to have fairness. And if, and I, I've said this uh, for a couple decades now, before NAFTA was, had come out, uh, I had done some studying on, on another topic, but I'd said the real answer is to, if we're in, the, in competition with these third-tier countries, is to put a surcharge on those products that come from them, those countries, and uh, you know just charge the product and then give the money back to the same country where they were built so that they can build their infrastructure, their school systems. Uh, we really didn't want that tax money. But put that sliding surcharge on there so that then people start getting everything they need. You have a, uh, you know, an EPA, for example, you know, you know, the Environmental Protection Agency that they don't even have in Mexico or didn't for a long time. I'm not sure if they have one right now. In my opinion, they don't still. But, you know, people in the Makia doors, they were uh, drinking the water and these babies were being deformed, being born deformed with open heads and open torsos. Just, just horrendous things were going on because they didn't have the EPA system in place in Mexico. And it was just a horrible thing that was going on in the mid-90s because of the Makia door corridor. Uh, and that's since moved south, and they've you know, alleviated a lot of that just by the movement away from the Rio Grande River. Uh, that sliding scale was not put into NAFTA. It's something that we called for, a sliding scale, sliding surcharge, based on, you know, you have to uh, make up to our minimum wage. For example, and that's the example that I use. If you if you're sending stuff in here that's not even on minimum wage, we're going to surcharge it by minimum wage, at least. So it's not coming over here with just you know slave wages in it. People making thirty cents an hour at that time, thirty five cents an hour, and they're still a lot less than we are. So if you put that sliding scale in there, even today, if they're making two fifty an hour. Roughly, and you know, we're not exactly sure, but around that number is what I'm told over the last couple of years. And you know, our minimum wage, you know, is uh, here in Michigan, it's over nine dollars. Uh, in California and in New York, it's fifteen dollars. So let's just use those two prime examples. Let's just use you know New York and California. Had they put that sliding scale in it and said, you know, if you build a vehicle with $2.50 labor or any product with $2.50 labor, we're going to input the difference between that and the highest minimum wage in the United States, 15 bucks. We're going we're to charge you that at the border, okay? And that would be a nice thing that would have kept those jobs here. We'd had something that wasn't just absolutely way out of balance. At least that would be 
somewhere near half, you know, in some, some instance like that. So the, they couldn't just dump their products over here for high profit. These companies are just, you know, taking advantage of the North American market because that's where they're all sold, and that's wrong. So the sliding surcharge for Mexico was not put into NAFTA, and a lot of us asked for it. And I've done a study on a completely different issue that, that called for that same result, and I'm going to get into that in just a second. From 1989 to 1992, pretty much every Saturday that I wasn't working or on some political project, I was in the basement of the Michigan State University because there was no Internet then, researching the other G7 countries' tax structure. And their tax structure is much different than ours. In 1982, in whole or in part, the rest of the world and all emerging countries morphed into, in, in whole or in part, a sales tax called a VAT tax, value-added tax. You'll see that on some, if you do any purchases, uh, uh, you know, uh, worldwide, globally, you'll see some, some of that on, on those uh, invoices. Uh, VAT tax. And all emerging countries took it on without morphing. They just, you know, if we did, were a developing country, we're going to establish our economy, we're going to have a sales tax. Well, that really puts us in a disadvantage and uh, because in 1982 at the Mexico City summit of the G7, they decided a lot of people, uh, my understanding is Alan Greenspan, Jack Welsh, Larry Kudlow, a lot of these names you see in the financial world and, you know, CEOs, were a part of that 35-member team that went to Mexico City in 1982. And they decided there that we were doing too good in the United States and we're going to go to a, have everybody else go to a sales tax, and we stayed on a payroll withholding tax at 32%. So that's a cost of government in the United States is 32% roughly for first-year wages. And obviously we have a lot of people making a lot less than that these days. Uh, but... That's uh, uh, something that's uh, out, uh, out there that we typically charge 32%. And if we send it to, we're going to use a country in, in Europe. I won't say the name just for now because it's changed since I did the study, non-academic study, but a good study nonetheless. Uh, and I'll get into that in just a bit. But they charge in this other country 17%, and they had a very clean sales tax, very, very nominal payroll withholding, and that only occurred at the very highest levels of income. So pretty much everybody was paying just a 17% sales tax. And then that was another cost of government. So if we exported our $10,000 vehicle to this other country, they would add 17% if we sold it there. That made it 14.9. Compounded it a little more, but we'll just go with 14.9. 32 and 17, 14.9 plus the 10,000 labor material and super burden. That's the cost of the facility. We know what labor is. We know materials the same worldwide, with little exception. Copper's the same price. Steel's roughly the same price. 
little exception, you know, because they have what's called arbitrage, and the traders keep it pretty much the same. There's, there's small differences for very brief periods of time, and the arbitrage people can then sell one and buy the other and bring it back into parity. Uh, so then you have, uh, uh, they have their product, again, 10,000 labor material and super burden. We were pretty even with labor at the time. And they sell it there, 10,000 plus their 17, and that's $11,700. Now, let me just go over that a little bit. One cost of government in the United States to sell our product. If we sell our product in in Europe, in this country, two costs of government because they put their tax on top of ours. If they sell theirs in their country, one cost of government. And then when they export it, they didn't sell it in their country, so there's no tax on it, no cost of government comes over here free, free of cost of government, no cost of government. So they can sell that product here for $10,000. And that's the essential reason that started my uh, curiosity regarding that issue as a young well younger leader in the UAW I said you know I'm looking around and our brothers and sisters are working their tail off and I just don't see anybody else working any harder than our people and yet they're saying they're blaming us the labor for the they can buy a product for 32 percent less a foreign product and they say it's because of us no it was because of the tax imbalance between us and the other country that's why. One cost of government for ours, send it to Europe in a specific country, two costs of government. They had one, and then when they send it here and export it here, there was zero cost of government in that product. Later on, as I explained this to a, uh, a man who had his, he was in his second master's program, he was a, an accountant, and he was in his second master's program uh, in Chicago. He was a son of a friend of mine. And I explained what I just explained to you. And he looked at me and he said, I'm in my second master's program, and I'm just learning about what you just articulated to me. Now, how do you know about this? And I told him I didn't non-academic study at Michigan State University in the basement for every Saturday for nearly three years to find out what it's taken you nearly six years of education to find out. And he was amazed by my uh, database on this particular issue. Now, we went along with this going on from 1982 until today. It's still in place. I'll tell you this. It caused a trade deficit because of that people buying their, their pocketbook and buying those products with no cost of government in them, buying them for 10000 rather than 13-2 on our own product. It caused us a trade deficit. And if you take the trade deficit from 1982, compounded by the United States 10-year Treasury bill, whatever that interest rate was, and I've done this in that spreadsheet, you will come up with the national debt today. It equals the national debt. Our trade deficit caused by a tax imbalance at the Mexico City summit 
by so-called financial leaders of this country, compounded by the the 10-year Treasury note, equals our national debt today. And that's a bad thing. And we just let this go on. At the 1990, I was blessed to go to the 1995 uh, Pell. I mean, in 1995, I was blessed to go to the National Pell. And I made this argument at every session in the National Pell, okay, that we were at a real distinctive disadvantage. One of the PhDs, economic PhDs in Boston when I was there, went home, did some calculations that night, came back, and he said, keep beating your drum. This is a quote from a Ph.D. economist at one of the finest universities in this nation. Keep beating your drum or we're going to be in dire straits. You are spot on with your argument. We need to adjust this somehow. Here it is 21 years later, and we are in dire straits. So we had some vision regarding our financial debacle. Now, here we come, and Hillary says, well, we'll renegotiate NAFTA. She tells that to Dennis Williams. Dennis Williams doesn't know what I just told you, listeners, because he doesn't have the database, nor has he done any research or spent any time in any Big Ten university, first-tier university in the basement, looking this stuff up try and protect our membership is what I was doing. Yeah. People call me self-serving. How many of you spent three years of your Saturdays in the basement of university trying to protect the membership? How many of you? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start taking you guys on calling me a liar. We're going to start debunking that stuff. I'm about sick of it. So Hillary says she's going to go out there and and renegotiate NAFTA. We don't know what she's going to do. And Dennis Williams didn't know the next question to ask her because her husband signed something else on December 8th of 1994, exactly one year later after NAFTA, called the Global Agreement on Tax and Tariff. Now, this started in 1947, but it was renegotiated by people that didn't care about our country and signed into law. It was passed by Congress, both houses of Congress, in 1995 and signed into law by President Clinton on December 8, 1994. Global Agreement on Tax and Tariff. That locked us into a non-competitive position for all time, never to be revisited, and they're not talking about that now. And that global tax imbalance that I just spoke to you about needs to be addressed because it locked us in with taxes and tariffs. We cannot do anything about those. because We can't just, like uh, the one presidential candidate from the Republican Party says, Trump, I want to tax China. Well, you can't because GATT's in place. Okay? GATT is in place. Global agreement on tax and tariff froze taxes and tariffs for all time, December 8, 1994. You can't just charge China. Now, I'll say it here out loud so that you can hear it here first. Similar to what I said about Mexico, the sliding surcharge that we'd send that money back to Mexico and let them build their infrastructure with that money. We don't want to, you know, keep that money. We just don't want them dumping their product here. We can send it back over there. 
Let them build their economy. That would have been a really cool thing to do. Nobody got it. We can do the same thing under GATT rules the way they are today. With every other country that's dumping product here with zero cost of government in it, we can charge whatever they would normally charge under their tax structure, whether it's 17%, as I just exampled, and send that money back to them. But they're not going to dump product here anymore. That is the answer to GATT. It doesn't violate GATT. It's just charging them money so they can't dump their products here and send it back to them, to their own country, where they should have charged it anyhow. That's the answer. But you don't have Dennis Williams out there making any sort of argument for GATT. Let's just fix NAFTA. Remember, our trade deficit is not necessarily all that bad with Mexico. But with China and Europe and India, our trade deficit is enormous, and it's caused by them having a sales tax and us having a payroll withholding tax. Of course, you know, they have those cheap products because of cheap labor, but that would end if we just surcharged their tax and sent it back to them. They can't dump product here in this United States anymore. That would stop a lot of this. You'll hear all manner of answers and all sort of opinions, but I'm here to tell you I was visionary back in 89 when I did the study in 1995 when I pissed off everybody in my class at the National Pell by articulating what I said a little briefer at every session in the National Pell. And those people will tell you today that I was spot on with my comments and I had vision beyond the pale. Again, we have no vision and no knowledge about what GATT has done to us by the current IUAW, in particular Dennis Williams, because if he really, really wanted to help this country and help our membership, he would have said to Hillary Clinton what I just told you. Shame on you, Dennis, for being so dumb. That's the end of my report. Jeff, do you have any comments? Oh, bravo, brother, bravo. Thank you. Good job. David? Thank you, brother. No. David? Um, okay. Um, I would like to, um, if you want to take a few minutes, um, just a short few, because we are long, um, yeah, to discuss long. the Fiat Chrysler automobiles um, that we won't be making in the United States anymore. Um, they're going to be um, shutting down um, the Chrysler 200 Dodge Dart and primarily produce Jeeps, SUVs, and Rams in the United States. All the remaining cars will be made in Mexico and Canada or other foreign nations. I'd like to say that um, we need to um, get the information out on our webpage um, in regards to um, VIN numbers, so our members know where our cars are coming from. Um, they're coming up from Mexico. I suggest we don't buy those products. Um, however, we should support our brothers and sisters in Canada in purchasing um, their products that they manufacture up there. Um, there also has been a shot across the bow by... Um, Sergio Marchion, 
trying to find that here. Um, he's basically saying that uh, he needs more concessions from uh, the workers in the United States. Um, I'm not finding that here. But uh, anyway, that was the uh, the gist of his comment, that uh, he's, he needs to have more... Uh, um, more concessions. Yeah. Well, good luck, Sergio. I mean, you've already taken all the autos out of here. You're no longer building automobiles, or you've announced that you're no longer going to build any automobiles in the United States. So it's going to be a little process. You said by January of 17 you're going to have that done, and you'll still build trucks and Jeep here, Jeep, complete Jeep line. So we appreciate you having those jobs here, that assembly operations here. But I believe you're going to see some changes, Mr. Sergio Marchione, in the leadership of the UAW very soon and in the political pressures that the UAW, when we do have new leadership, applies to Congress and the administration, executive branch, and the judicial branch as much as we can to the end that I just mentioned here. You're not going to have the ability to dump product in our country for very much longer and take those products and stick them in your product. Here's his exact comment. Marcion warned that unless the company can negotiate more competitive labor deals with the United Auto Workers, it will stop building sedans and compact cars in the United States. The slump in Fiat Chrysler sedan sales respect, reflects a broader shift. No longer is the consumer demand strong across all market segments and body styles. That's yeah. his exact quote. Yeah. Well, he announced that, didn't he announce that they're going to you know, stop building them here in the United States, right, Jeff? Or David? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah. Jeff, do you have any comment on that? Uh, Sergio, just, he's just a big, dumb bully. Yeah. He uh, came out about a year ago or so saying that he was asking people not to buy the electric uh, Fiat 500 because it costs too much to build them. He's losing money. Well, if you're losing money, why do you continue making them? <laughs> he just to me, he's a bad businessman if he makes that kind of public statement. Um, right. And as far as concessions from the UAW, hell no, we're not giving up any more concessions to nobody. So, we'll see how it goes exactly. from there. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, Jeff, we're, we're concessioned out. In fact, we should have had clawback, and you see that in some of the writings that you're seeing on our page. By the way, the fellows have uh, referenced our page, our Facebook page, and that's Working for a Living. That's W O R K I N, the number four A Living, L I V I N, Working for a Living on Facebook. And we have a website, and we have this radio show, and we have Twitter, Working for a Living. So uh, if you're on any of those and want to catch up with us, uh, please feel free to. To, to check us out, but the Facebook page is where we 
typically uh, post most, uh, almost all of our, our stuff. Uh, the Blog Talk Radio, if you're uh, listening, you can go there and uh, um, see the slideshow of every topic that we talked about here this evening. Uh, there's a slide for each one of those topics so that you get a flavor as you're watching uh, our, our uh, show. Uh, listening to it, you can watch the slideshow go by, and these are pretty cool slides. Last week was our first week with that. So, but uh, having said that, uh, yes, uh, Jeff is uh, uh, has been posting the Chrysler stuff, and David has been posting some follow-up stuff regarding the Chrysler uh, issue and the Ford issue, and this uh, the Dennis Williams uh, issue with Hillary. Uh, so, uh, please feel free to go to our, our Facebook page and check out all of this stuff, as Jeff has uh, asked everybody to do. Uh, just it's a simple friend request on, on our Facebook page. Just, and we're all three of us are administrators there, so we can uh, vet you. Uh, and it is just for labor issues. There's a couple of them that kind of got close to the edge last, last week, but uh, we let them go because they did time to labor. But we're not uh, going to get into politics uh, other than report what is actually going on like we did with the uh, teachers issue about the Republican governor now uh, appealing that issue. Uh, we'll just let you know who and what they are uh, when they do things against us. Um, by the way, uh, Jeff, I didn't mean to interrupt you, Jeff. Finish up what you had there. I'm sorry, brother. No, I'm, I'm, I'm good. Okay. Yeah. By the way, the, uh, um, the, the Honeywell workers uh, they're supposed to be do their unemployment according to the Indiana unemployment rule, rules, and they've yet to receive anything there from the unemployment office in uh, Indiana. And the it appears as though, because he's been appealed to and has had no uh, sympathy for our workers that have been locked out, same as a layoff of the facility there in uh, South Bend, Indiana, the Honeywell plant. Uh, the governor of Indiana, a Republican, uh, has now uh, been holding up their unemployment for almost three months since the 9th of uh, May, I believe it was. And here we are facing August, another hmm, nine more days. It'll be three months. Uh, it just so happens that this man is now the vice presidential candidate for the Republican Party. Uh, just keep that in mind on how he treats workers in his own state. And that's about as political as we're going to get. But we're going to, we're going to report when they're bad to us. So having said that, uh, Jeff, do you have anything else at all to add? No, we're, we're, we're good. We're real good. Okay, good. Thank you. David, anything else? Yeah, um, could you um, post that address to our page? For, um, I will to um, send letters for Arts Appeal. I will. And, uh, we'll, we'll share that around. You bet. I, I, I got that address. So. Is that anything else, David? Nope. That's it. Uh, right. Oh, okay. Thanks, fellas. Uh, great job again tonight. Had a couple of visitors, so we're a little bit long here, and we did have that one issue regarding uh, what's really got us in trouble with our economy. Uh, and how Dennis failed in his uh, ability to address Hillary on the real issue that's caused us our problem. He should really listen to this show. 
maybe you'll learn something. Having said that, uh, please remember our, our email address is workingforaliving at workingforaliving.com. You can follow us on Blog Talk Radio. Uh, you know, obviously this is a podcast, so you can listen to this anytime during the week. Uh, if you find value in this show, please tell just one more person about us. Uh, if any of you know Dennis Williams, tell him to listen to this show too. I think you'll learn something. Uh, having said that, let's give a shout-out to all our friends in Brook Park, Flat Rock, Tonawanda, Lordstown, my hometown down there, Youngstown, uh, Flint, Pontiac, Detroit, Bedford, Indiana, brother and vice president down there at that local really, really uh, showed himself to be a real real solid guy down there earlier this year. So, uh, Lansing, Michigan, Toledo, Chicago, Kansas City, Fairfax, St. Louis, Wentzville, Arlington, down there to the break room, Chattanooga, Tennessee, Doraville, Georgia, Santa Cruz, California, and everyone else around the country and the world, Mexico and Canada, our friends there as well. Please have a safe week as you get through this week, and I'll say good night, and good night to Dave and Jeff. Good night, fellas. Good night, guys. Good night, Okay, have a good week. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.